1: Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, this is a difficult
3: moment for America. This is Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124.
4: In
1: that moment, I think we all matured, maybe a little bit. You know, it helped me gain a new perspective of the world. Welcome to a special edition of the Michael Smirconish Program. A tribute to the 20th anniversary of 9-11.
5: It helped me come to a realization that the world is not a perfect, harmonious place. I mean, obviously they've tightened up security within the last couple of years. And
0: I was alive and I was here when it happened.
5: Keep a dream alive of America,
6: that how we how we want to be and how we need to be.
5: You know, we had to see something so tragic like that actually happen. I
3: am a part of this. Now, here's Michael Smirkanish.
1: 20 years, hard to believe, 20 years, 20 years have passed since the momentous day of our collective lives, right? In other words, outside of our personal milestones, 9-11 was for us the December 7 of our lives. I was on radio air that day in 2001. I wasn't supposed to be. I was actually, as the day began, trying a case. I was trying a case in Philadelphia's City Hall. It was day two of trial. I'll tell you more about that later. But when court adjourned before noon, I was asked by the radio station where I was affiliated to come on air emergently and discuss the events of the day, which I did. Nothing could usually break my trial concentration. If I were trying a case, I would eat, sleep, and drink that case. As I reflect on it, the fact that I took a three hour shift that afternoon into early evening is itself. A reflection of how I knew, as we all knew, that life would never be the same for us. And for every 9-11 thereafter, I have dedicated my entire radio program on the anniversary to remembering the events of that day. It's a topic that has consumed more of my radio air than any other. And as a result, I possess an extensive library of tape, of commentary, calls, and guest interviews that frankly make it difficult to condense into a three-hour broadcast. Today is the final day we'll do this. We will never forget, but next year and thereafter, we will not do what we're about to do right now. If you miss any part of this broadcast, please listen to the SXM app or my daily podcast, because both will contain everything that's about to unfold. Each hour has a different focus. Hour one will drill down, will focus on the buildup, meaning the events preceding 9-11. You'll meet Jose Melendez Perez, a true American hero, the man who prevented the 20th hijacker from entering the U.S. one month before 9-11. And Jose arguably saved a direct strike on the White House or the Capitol by keeping Mohammed al khatani out of the United States. Wait until you hear that story. Michael Toohey was a Portland, Maine, U.S. Airways ticket agent who handed boarding passes to two of the hijackers and immediately, upon recognizing what had happened in Manhattan, knew that was two of those guys. Alice Hoagland lost her son, Mark. He was one of the heroes, Mark Bingham, on United Flight 93. She spoke to him when he was midair and in the midst of all that chaos. You'll hear her description. Former Navy Secretary and 9-11 Commissioner John Lehman also this hour talking about the work that was done by the 9-11 Commission to figure out what had transpired and given rise to those events. Lawrence Wright, the author of The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11, a great book. Kevin Flynn, New York Times writer, author of 102 Minutes. That book, the focus, the time period between what happened from the time that the first plane struck a twin tower to when the second tower collapsed. New York Fire Chief Richard Pitch Picciotto, he was trapped under the rubble at ground zero, lived to tell about it, wrote a book called The Last Man Down. Then in hour two, we'll focus on the events of the day itself. You'll hear some of the tape of the broadcast that I delivered 20 years ago on September 11, frankly, with very little awareness of bin Laden or al-Qaeda. Ben Sliney, It was his first day as the FAA's National Operations Manager in Herndon, Virginia. Day one on the job, he had to oversee the grounding of all flights in the airspace above the United States. Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief James Meigs refuted the myths of September 11. Unfortunately, they continue to today, but you'll hear him run through some of the best-known and why they're fictitious Aaron Brown, it was also his very first day on the job. In his case at CNN, he became the face and voice of 9-11 coverage for so many of us in a way that Walter Cronkite was the voice of the Kennedy assassination for our parents. Gary Bernson, a 20-year CIA veteran, boots on the ground, trying to capture, trying to kill bin Laden at Tora Bora. How close did we come? You'll hear his description. And then in hour three, we shift our focus to the aftermath of September 11, the hunt for bin Laden and life in the United States thereafter. Then Senator Barack Obama, March of 2008, explaining to me before his election as president that he would pursue bin Laden even if he found him in Pakistan. Those words ended up being prescient. We all know what ended in Abbottabad. Speaking of which, Michael Scherer, writing for the New York Times, ...about the mission called Geronimo, what was going on in the Situation Room when we finally did kill bin Laden. Peter Baker got to share the byline on the killing of bin Laden on the front page of the New York Times, one of the most significant stories in American history. You'll hear his perspective... A different Peter, Peter Bergen, wrote the book Manhunt, the 10-year search for bin Laden. More recently, he wrote The Rise and Fall of bin Laden. Peter Bergen distinguishes himself as a journalist covering all these events because he actually met bin Laden and toured the Abbottabad compound after his killing and before it was raised. Speaking of the killing of bin Laden, two members of SEAL Team 6 who took him out. Mark Owen was my guest. That's a pen name for the man we now know as Matt Bissonette. His book, No Easy Day. Rob O'Neill, who's credited with firing the shots that killed bin Laden, also wrote a book called The Shooter. Jennifer Senior will round out this commemorative broadcast. A staff writer for The Atlantic talking about one particular American family and the havoc that those events caused in their lives. Finally, thank you to Steven Singer, the jeweler, and to everybody in the last two decades who ever bought a 9-11 Never Forget pin. Because of Steven, and because of you, we raised in excess of a million dollars, and we did it, $10 at a time, for 9-11-related charities. No, we will never forget. Now let's get to it. We begin one month before September 11. It's August 4 of 2001. The scene is the Orlando International Airport. And there, an astute customs and border patrol agent named Jose Melendez Perez is working that day in secondary screening. He told me that if he'd been asked that morning whether he was familiar with uh, al-Qaeda, whether he'd heard of the name bin Laden, the answer would probably have been no. What he brought to the job that day was a, a good common sense and an unbelievable street smarts. A good instinct, as I would later title a book that I wrote about him. When a young Saudi national stepped off an airplane coming from the U.K., not having been able to complete his entry forms, he said that he was unable to speak English. He was referred to Melendez Perez in secondary screening. He hadn't filled out the form called the I-94. His name was Mohammed al and he was referred to Jose Melendez Perez for that level of secondary screening. As soon as Melendez Perez spied the man, he said... He just gave him the creeps. There was something about his disposition. There was something about his demeanor that caused him to undertake an interrogation. Jose Melendez Perez would later tell me that he considered the man a potential malethite. I don't think I'd heard that word before. So now, working through an interpreter who was patched in from Washington, D.C., via telephone, Jose Melendez Perez began to probe Muhammad al Qatani. The more that he asked, the more that he listened, the more he didn't like. Three times he said that he had to get out of his chair and leave the room because of the chill that the man elicited. The man had arrived on a one-way ticket, had a shaky story as to who'd he be meeting. Melendez Perez thought he was up to no good. And so he sought to deny the man entry, and colleagues tried to dissuade him. Colleagues said, wait, Jose, the man is a Saudi national. The Saudis have clout. We don't want to have to deal with any inquiries from offices of members of Congress. But Jose Melendez Perez stuck to his guns and denied entry August 4, 2001, to Mohammed al Qatani. And as Mohammed al-Qahtani turned away from Jose Melendez Perez, he said this man who supposedly couldn't speak English, I'll be back. One month later came September 11. On that day, watching the events unfold, Jose Melendez Perez thought of the man to whom he denied entry. In December of that year, in the Battle of Tora Bora in Afghanistan, the battle from which bin Laden was able to escape, Mohammed al-Qahtani was captured. And having been captured because of the information gleaned from him by Jose Melendez Perez at the Orlando International Airport, he was identified, and two and two were put together. It was recognized that he had attempted to gain entry to the United States one month before September 11. And here's the kicker. The 9-11 Commission would later determine that at the moment that Jose Melendez Perez was denying entry to Mohammed al-Qahtani, Waiting to pick up Katani at the Orlando airport was Mohammed Atta, the 9-11 ringleader and mastermind. Mohammed al katani was to have been the 20th hijacker. Remember, there were only 19 on September 11. Flight 93 had four, the other airplanes had five. Flight 93 did not complete its mission to strike either the White House or the Capitol because the passengers were able to overpower the four terrorists. More than one 9-11 Commission member has remarked to me that but for Jose Melendez Perez denying entry to Mohammed al Qatani, the added muscle of Katani aboard Flight 93 could have kept it in the air for the additional 20 minutes, that's all it needed, To end up in Washington, D.C., not Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I've written a book about Jose Melendez Perez. It's called Instinct. All of the proceeds that I was paid went to the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville. I've spent a great deal of time with him. He's retired now. He is a very decent, conscientious man, very unassuming, and a real patriot. I will never forget. The day that I had the privilege of taking a thousand radio listeners with me on a bus trip all the way across Pennsylvania to visit the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville and to have on bus number one, Jose Melendez Perez. This is a portion of one of my many interviews with Jose. Would you remind my audience, what were you doing? What was your job at that time?
4: Well, at that time, I was working at Orlando International as an immigration inspector, and uh, Mr. Catani came from London, with in Virgin 15. Uh, you know, and he presented himself like he was coming to visit the United States, and uh, because he didn't complete his forms, he was referred to secondary inspection. Uh, at that time, I was a secondary officer, and I was the one who interviewed Mr. Catani. And uh, Mr. Catani's intention to come into the United States was not... Uh, as a vacationer, he stayed. Uh, he was supposed to meet uh, with Mr. Atta. Mr. Atta was waiting upstairs for him, and basically what they claim, or the nine eleven Commission claim was that Mr. Akatani was supposed to be the fifth hijacker on Flight 93.
1: Now, what, what we have to remind everybody, because, you know, we all know all this information now, we have to wind the clock back. It's a month before September eleven. And uh, the gentleman who's my guest right now, Jose Melendez Perez, is a screener and is at the Orlando International Airport, and he gets called upon because something doesn't ring right with this guy, and they want you to come and to interview him, correct?
4: That is
1: correct. Sir. And you you ended up testifying, Mr. Melendez Perez, in front of the 9-11 Commission. Uh, you received a, an ovation from the victim family members who were there, and all of the 9-11 Commissioners praised you. You told them that this guy, quote, just gave me the creeps. What was it about Mohammed Al-Qahtani, Katani, is the focus of this Time Magazine piece this week, cover story? What is it about him that gave you the creeps?
4: Well, this guy, number one, he was, uh, he stared. You know, the way he looked at me when, when I went to the secondary room to pick him up, uh, his body language, uh, the way he expressed himself, he kept pointing the finger at my face when he was in the speakerphone with the uh, interpreter I mean this guy' behavior I mean like I said before you must have been there to see what I was talking about this guy was uh, the stare his look was like he was ready to uh, to jump on me to do something I mean this guy was so arrogant that was pathetic. I mean, this guy didn't have one thing in mind and was to come back, come into the United States no matter what. I thought that he was using an intimidating type of factory in order to see if they had backup back up from the interrogation and let him in.
1: We're back in real time, and here's an amazing footnote to the Jose Melendez Perez story. I already told you that he arguably prevented an attack on the Capitol or the White House. Well, he also played a significant role in the killing of bin Laden. Mohammed al Qatani was taken to Gitmo after he was captured on a battlefield in Tora Bora. He's one of the individuals who, in the course of his interrogation at Gitmo, identified bin Laden's courier. It was by following that courier that we were led to Abbottabad. Had Jose Melendez Perez not turned away al Qatani? He'd have been aboard Flight 93. Flight 93 could have struck Washington. And had al-Qahtani perished on that flight, he would not have been in Gitmo to identify the courier for bin Laden. We have Jose Melendez Perez to thank for that portion of the story. I'll be back in just a moment.
2: Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack. Now...
1: Back to a special
3: tribute of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You're listening to the Michael Smirconish program on Sirius XM's POTUS, channel 124.
1: Hey, thanks so much for being tuned into this remembrance. So I've just shared with you the story of Jose Melendez Perez, the astute uh, Customs and Border Patrol agent working in Orlando International Airport a month in advance of September 11. Jose is not the only one whose instincts sounded an alarm. Preceding the events of September 11, Michael Tuey was another. He now lives with the regret that he didn't take action on his instinct. Two terrorists came to Portland to catch a flight to Boston early on the morning of September 11 to begin their murderous path. And Mr. Tui was then employed as a U.S. Airways ticket agent in Portland, Maine. He handled the boarding passes for Mohammed Atta and Abdulaziz Alamari. On that
2: morning. You know, the ticket counter was clear. There were several other agents on the counter, and it was clear, so I still have that bad cigarette habit. I was going to step outside to have a cigarette. But just as I was uh, to step over the counter and go outside, I saw these two fellas standing there, and I, uh, I, I, I said, Are you on U.S. Airways? And, you know, they nodded their head, and I said, Well, come over here and I'll check you in. And, uh,. They stepped up to the counter, and then I took a direct look at them after I got settled. And, uh, well, I asked them the security questions, asked them they were checking bags. And, well, they just looking at them, uh, when I asked them for their licenses, they both pulled out licenses and held them up in the air. And I just had a quick, brief thought in my mind, you know, because I looked at the tickets, and they got one-way first-class tickets to Los Angeles which is unusual. I mean, short, that sticks out. When you see a $2,500 ticket,
1: sure, you don't
2: see them every day. And then I looked up you know to acknowledge them and ask them the questions, and one guy was looking at me. I mean, it sent chills to you. Something in your stomach just churns. And subconsciously I said to myself, geez, if this don't look like an Arab terrorist, nothing does. So then, I gave myself a mental slap because you know that's not the proper thing to do. You know, because over thirty-four years, I've checked in thousands of, of people of Arabic descent, uh, of, uh, Indian, Arabic, Sikhs, you know, whatever. And I'm saying, "Cheese, that's not a nice thing to think." These are just two guys going on a trip, couple of Arab business guys. And then, uh, you know, I proceeded to check their bags, ask them the security questions. And I was handing them back their envelopes and told them you better. You know, it was 5:43 in the morning exactly, because that's the time that was on their bag tags and their boarding cards. 5:43 a.m. They only had 17 minutes to get upstairs to the flight. And uh, I, the guy, the short one, the scary-looking guy, he says to me, uh, "He says I don't have a boarding card for American Airlines." I says, "No." uh... You know, don't. I said. He says. He said they told me one-stop check-in. I said, Well, sir, he says, you're going to have to stop at American Airlines and pick up your boarding card there. He says. The, he says no one-stop check-in. And I could tell that he was getting a little agitated now I'm thinking, Oh no, this guy's going to give me a bad time, and he's not going to make the flight. So he, he just. I mean, I mean, the look he gave me was just bone-chilling. And I, I thought he was going to say some more, but then he just. Snap turned around a snap in a snap and walked away
1: you've described for me i think quite well essentially how you know the hair went up on your back because there was just something that told you it wasn't right
2: yeah it's you know it's something in the pit of your stomach you know you just you just you can't describe it you know it's i call it your gut feeling you know you go with your gut
1: that's michael tuwy who worked for us airways in portland maine on the morning of september 11 I want to share with you on this whole subject of airline security, what will probably be the shortest clip that I'll play during the course of this three-hour broadcast. It comes from a particular hearing of the 9-11 Commission. I, uh, it sounds odd to say, but I was a fan of the work of the 9-11 Commission. I salute the work of Governor Kane and Congressman Hamilton and those who served on the September 11 Commission. I, I think that they did a, a tremendous job as far as they took things. There was one 9-11 Commission member in particular with whom I had the privilege of spending a lot of time, and that's John Lehman, who was Ronald Reagan's Naval Secretary, youngest Secretary of the Navy at least through that time. He was a John McCain pick for the 9-11 Commission. Remember, there were many people who did not want there to be. The Bush administration initially did not want. Denny Hastert, as the House Speaker, did not want there to be a 9-11 Commission. I want to know everything. I still want to know everything about the events of September 11. And so I paid close attention to the work of the 9-11 Commission. I remember where I was when I heard the questioning of Secretary Rice. Condoleezza Rice was a witness one day before the 9-11 Commission at a public hearing. And this hearing stands out in my mind because... It's the hearing where we learned for the first time the title of a PDB, a presidential daily briefing that was presented to President Bush a month before September 11. I'm doing this from memory, but I i think I'm secure in saying that the title was Bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. And so the day that that came out at the 9-11 Commission hearing, that, that was the news cycle. Everybody was focused on the fact that Bush had received, President Bush had received a PDB with that kind of a title, and we then discussed and debated the significance. There was something else that happened, though, that day at the 9-11 Commission that piqued my curiosity, and it came when Secretary Lehman questioned Condoleezza Rice and had this very brief exchange. Before I go to justice, were you aware that it was the policy, and I believe it remains the policy today... Uh, to fine airlines if they have more than two young Arab males uh, in secondary questioning, because uh, that's discriminatory. Now, you don't hear her response, and, and frankly, her response was inconsequential. She said she knew nothing about that. I was watching that on the day that it took place, and I said, wait a minute, what, what did he just say? What, what, can we play that one more time? What exactly did Secretary Lehman just ask of Condoleezza Rice? Before I go to justice, were you aware that it was the policy and I believe remains the policy today uh, to fine airlines if they have more than two young Arab males uh, in secondary questioning? Because that's discriminatory. Uh, So if you follow that to its logical conclusion, it means that that if you had a suspicion on September 11. That these five individuals on three of the flights or four individuals on flight 93 were up to no good. You couldn't have pulled them out of line to question them because that would be perceived as discriminatory for which the airline could be fined. So I tracked down Secretary Lehman. I remember this interview well. If I had time, if if I had 30 hours, maybe next year, take a week and talk about it because I have that much material in my archives. But I remember tracking him down and questioning him I have a distinct recollection of catching up with him on a farm uh, because you you hear livestock in the background. And and maybe I caught him in a candid moment or or he's just he's a a very, you know, un-PC kind of a guy. No BS. And I said, Mr. Secretary, what were you talking about when you asked that question? Nobody else picked up on it. And he said, well, we had testimony from airline executives who said that was absolutely the policy. And I was flabbergasted and I wrote that which he told me up in a, uh, a story that I wrote initially for the Philadelphia daily news. I think it then got picked up in the New York post and it, 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 uh, it got some national attention and the department of transportation told me, they issued a statement where they said that, that I was, that I was nuts in what I had written. I was relying on a nine 11 commission member who was relying on sworn testimony. And there became this kerfuffle. And because DOT, under the direction of Norman Mineta, called me out. I became somewhat dogged in my pursuit of, well, what were the facts pertaining to quote-unquote profiling before and after September 11? And what I learned horrified me. I ended up testifying in front of a Senate committee at the invitation of United States Senator Arlen Specter on this issue, wrote up my findings, and they became my first book, Flying Blind. I never set out to write a book. I was trying to tell a story about how I thought political correctness was compromising airline security. And by the way, I gave all the proceeds of that book to the Garden of Reflection. Do you know what I learned? I learned that in the immediate aftermath of September 11, in the immediate aftermath, right after September 11, our Department of Transportation fined four U.S. commercial carriers millions of dollars for alleged discrimination as they sought to prevent a repeat, Of the terrorism. Stunningly, those punished included United and American Airlines, which lost two airplanes apiece and a combined total of more than 30 of their own personnel on September 11. The Department of Transportation under Secretary Norman Mineta initiated discrimination complaints against both of them that were settled for 1.5 million apiece. I read the litigation files. And the fact patterns were all the same. You know, Picture a pilot in the cockpit ready to pull back from the gate. He's got a schedule to keep and a statutory obligation to see to it that anybody who's perceived to be, and and here are the magic words from the federal statute at the time, inimical to public safety, the captain's got a duty to see to it that they're removed. And then comes a knock on the cockpit door, and the pilot is told either by somebody from the flight crew or someone in law enforcement, hey, you know, so-and-so in 3C, is of Middle Eastern descent, they've been acting in a suspicious fashion, and their name is either on or similar to a name which is on a federal watch list. So what should we do, Captain? And to the extent that the pilot agreed to have the passenger questioned while he goes ahead and departs, our government, in the aftermath of September 11, perceived his actions to be discriminatory and initiated legal proceedings against the airline. American Airlines, United, Continental, and Delta were all, I would use the word, victimized in that fashion. And that's what I wrote about in Flying Blind.
2: Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death,
5: I fear no evil, for you are with me.
3: Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. This is a special edition of the Michael Smirkanish Program. This is a day when all
2: Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. A tribute
1: to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I'm Michael Smirkanish. Welcome back to our special 9-11 tribute program. Back to the story as I'm trying to present it in chronological order. Alice Hoagland is the mother of Mark Bingham, Mark Bingham, her only child. Mark was one of the Flight 93 heroes. Mark Bingham, a very interesting guy, born in 1970, UC Berkeley grad, president of the Sai fraternity, rugby player, and gay. All of those things. He almost missed his flight that day. He was rushing at Newark to board a flight to San Francisco to be an usher in a friend's wedding. Alice Hoagland on several occasions has been a guest on My Radio program talking about her son Mark Bingham, talking about Tom Burnett, talking about Todd Beamer, talking about all those heroes of Flight 93 whom we'll never forget.
3: Mark Mark Bingham was one of the handful of guys that stood up and fought on the morning of September eleventh to regain control of Flight Ninety Three from the four hijackers who had taken over. The plane and were uh, determined to crash it into a landmark building, probably the Capitol Building in Washington. But uh, Mark and a and a group of guys got together and decided they weren't going to let that happen. So they 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 massed their forces and and pulled their uh, sports skills together and did a big run on the cockpit <laughs> and and in the middle of this fist fight and terrible melee, where. Uh, they were. They managed to kill a couple of the of the terrorists. And while they were in the process of breaking through the door, the terrorists probably it was the terrorists that put the plane into the ground. But in any case, there was a struggle at the controls of the cockpit for the the, the airplane. At
1: what point did uh, did your son reach out for you?
3: Oh, he called me uh, a few minutes before this whole battle started. Uh Mark was never one to tell me what was going to happen <laughs> or certainly uh, fill me in on much of the detail was he, when he was in a big jam. He, his message to me when the phone rang early in the morning out here in California on the morning of September 11th, his message was, uh, Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I just want to let you know that I love you.
1: And that was and it? And
3: he gave me a little detail, and then we were cut off. And, uh uh, and I tried to call him back and say, "Hey, Mark, you got to pull together and get, get a group of passengers together and, and take a run at these guys because they're going to try to crash the plane." But he never got the message because he and Tom Burnett and and Jeremy Glick and very likely uh, Alan Bevan and uh, Todd Beamer and, uh, <laughs> we're, we're, and uh, who who knows who else we're trying to we're trying to. Get control back of the plane already. And,
1: and Todd Beamer is the one credited with those words, let's roll.
3: Yes, he is. Uh, I think that Tom Burnett deserves a lot of credit for this because he called his wife, Dina, and Dina, who also deserves a lot of credit, uh, gave Tom the information that they needed to, to, to uh, plan this little rebellion on board. My son and Tom were seatmates, and when Mark called me to to talk to me for a few minutes, I could hear another person, a native speaker, speaking in American English, talking in a low, calm voice to Mark. And after it was all over and I learned about Tom and, and Dina, I realized that it was Tom and Mark that had kind of hatched this whole thing.
1: That was the battle taking place over the skies of Pennsylvania on September 11. What were the perpetrators up to? I don't mean the 19 who were aboard those flights. I mean those who had hatched this plan as they sat in caves overseas. Lawrence Wright once provided me the answer. Lawrence Wright won a Pulitzer writing The Looming Tower. As a matter of fact, Time magazine has said that The Looming Tower is one of the 100 most consequential books ever written. The Looming Tower is largely focused on the people involved in the September 11 attacks, their motives, their personalities, and how they interacted. It starts with Saeed Qutb, an Egyptian religious scholar who visited the United States in the late 40s and then returned to his homeland to become an anti-West Islamist and eventually a martyr for his beliefs. There's also a portrait of Ayman al-Zwahiri from his childhood in Egypt to his participation in and later leadership of the egyptian islamic jihad to the merging of his organization with al-qaeda bin laden is dealt with extensively bin laden is the person described the most from his childhood in saudi arabia in a rich family to his participation in the jihad against the soviet union in afghanistan his role as a financier of terror groups his stay in sudan his return to afghanistan and his interactions with the taliban Looming Tower then traces al-Qaeda's terrorist route through the 1998 United States Embassy bombings in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania and Nairobi, Kenya, the bombing of the USS Cole in the year 2000. He describes in some detail the American response at the time, runs through all of the personalities who were playing a role, and then concludes, the book describes some of the problems In the lack of cooperation between the FBI and CIA. And it doesn't spend a lot of time on what transpired on September 11. But the looming tower takes us right to uh, that day. Here's a portion of one of my many conversations over the years with Lawrence Wright. Mr. Wright, one of the aspects of the book was bin Laden on September 11. And that's always something I've wondered about. And having read a great deal about the subject, you've come as close to anyone as telling us what the heck he was doing on that day, how he received the news, and where he went thereafter. Would you just give the cliff note version of what you write in the book?
5: Yeah, he he had planned for this, and uh, he, he got his... Uh, subordinates to get a, 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 t- a satellite connection and a television and they went they took to the hills uh, but they on 9-11 they couldn't get good reception uh, for the television so they had to rely on the radio and um, so they sat around listening uh, as the first plane hit and uh, bin laden you know they all you know praising god thank, you know being so excited and bin laden held up his finger and with you know two and then uh, then the next plane hit and everyone thinks that this is you know the most miraculous thing and he holds up a third finger and it, he was so proud of himself and um you know they uh at the end um you know they were all beside themselves thinking that this is you know the greatest thing but on the other hand when the towers fell, it was more than they expected, and they began to realize that the pendulum was going to swing back in their direction.
1: Well, unless I misinterpreted what you also wrote, it seems like, and there's also a scene in the book on the Afghan-Pakistani border where he comes into some, you know, some dirt town, and a guy recognizes he's the man on the wanted poster. But oh, the that phone... was
5: that was the Wahri, the number two guy. Oh, yeah.
1: it was and but the guy doesn't have a telephone to right. to, to, to to call. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, that, this is this is why the, the the reward should have been you know a herd of yak if you can tell us where he is instead of all that money which means nothing to these people.
5: Yeah, um, they could have closed the door. And uh, you know the the thing that I'd like you know for people to understand is that um, after nine eleven, you know there was a the battle of Tora Bora. and Bin Laden and the you know most of the Al Qaeda leaders were there. We know you know we know they were there. It's the last time they'll ever be, you know, the you know the whole movement in one place. And even though we didn't capture or kill bin Laden or Zawahiri, al-Qaeda essentially was dead. Uh, we captured or killed about 85% of their membership.
1: That was Lawrence Wright, the book, Looming Tower. The New York Fire Department and the New York Police Department paid an enormous price on September 11. When we come back in just a moment, you will meet the last man down, Chief Richard Pitch Piciato, the last, if not one of the last, of the New York firefighters to escape the Twin Towers with his life.
2: None of us will ever forget this
5: day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. This is the Michael Smirconish Program.
1: Marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11, here's Michael Smirkanish. An amazing book was written by two New York Times writers, Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn. And it was called 102 Minutes, appropriately, because 102 minutes is the duration, is the span between the moment that Flight 11 hit the North Tower and the time period by which the South Tower having been struck by United Flight 175, collapsed. And they present the story from the perspective of those inside the building, the 12,000 who escaped and the 2,749 who did not. Here's a portion of a conversation I had with Kevin Flynn. The folks who jumped or fell from the North Tower exceeded the number who jumped or fell from the South Tower. Why? Uh,
6: Because we think i mean this is a theory but i think the theory that uh, has sort of held has been that um, the north tower is hit at a much um, higher point and has many more people uh, in it because the South Tower is hit second and it's hit um, uh, lower down and many of the people have already evacuated from the top of the South Tower so that you have in the North Tower uh, a great number of people trapped in a very small space whereas in the South Tower you have about half as many people and they're in oh, almost twice as many floors so we don't think that the conditions as terrible as they are in the South South Tower ever approached the conditions in the North Tower, which is what prompted the jumping from the North
1: Tower. A lot of folks have always wondered why weren't there hundreds, if not thousands, of people congregating on the roof of the Twin Towers?
6: And the answer is that the roofs were locked. Um, Even though New York City uh, building codes uh, require the roofs to be open, the Port Authority, which was the owner of the buildings, didn't need to follow the New York City building code as part of uh, uh, being an independent agency half-owned by the state of New Jersey. As a result, they didn't have to follow the building code, and they thought that there was going to be sort of pranksters and people committing suicide off the roof, and so they had a policy of locking it. Many people tried to get to the roof, but uh, they ultimately found that there were locked doors at the top.
1: There are some stories of real uh, heroics in the book. Rick Rescorla is one of my favorites. W- would you just give me the Cliff Note version of Rick Rescorla?
6: Well, he just uh, he got a megaphone, he got out on the stairs, and he did an unbelievable job of getting. Uh, uh, I think it was twenty seven hundred people from his company uh, down the stairs, although he himself was not one of the people that ultimately
1: survived. And finally, uh, I guess a, t- a tough subject to, to discuss: the-, the the firefighters who were inside the north tower when it collapsed why they were there and what exactly they were doing
6: well they were um Many of them did not know that the South Tower had collapsed because of the inability of the radios to communicate from the lobby to the upper floors. And so even though uh, some of the guys on the upper floors had seen that there was a problem and began to evacuate, uh, they ran into a whole bunch of them on the 19th floor for whom the severity of the situation was not apparent. And so uh, while some of those guys actually made it out, uh, the belief is that many of what is dozens, uh, perhaps as many as 100 firefighters who were congregated resting after this unbelievable climb on the 19th floor uh, ultimately did not make it out because they did not understand the severity of the situation
1: what was it like to be trapped under the rubble chief richard pitch picciato wrote a book called last man down a firefighter story of survival and escape from the world trade center and he told me this
0: some of the things that the fire department didn't want to want to be said you know, I said, you know, we had major problems with communication. Um, we, you know, from the ground and from outside the lobby, they couldn't communicate into the building, so they couldn't give the order. Um, they were trying to give the order to evacuate, but no one really heard it. So where I was, I, I gave the order myself um, to evacuate, but a lot of people didn't hear it again. I had a bullhorn with me, and I was calling on, on the bullhorn to all three stairwells, for people to evacuate, and a lot of people heard it and started going down. As a matter of fact, on the oral histories, a lot of people, um, a lot of the firefighters, you know, repeat that, that that's when they started going out is when they heard the order from some chief on the 35th floor
1: um,
0: telling uh, them to evacuate.
1: Could you see people who nevertheless were deciding to just stay in place?
0: Um, yeah. <clears throat> again, I talk about a little bit of that in the book. Um, some people were doing that. Uh, I wasn't allowing it. I wasn't allowing anyone to stay. Um, you know, if they had to be forced, and one person did have to be forced away from his desk, uh, you know, literally, I, you know, grabbed him and, and, you know, told the fireman, if he doesn't walk down the stairs, pick him up and throw him down. Um, and firemen, a lot of firemen didn't want to leave, also, but you know, they weren't given that option. They would, they would, they would be told they would be ordered to leave. And that's what was happening.
1: So by how many seconds or minutes did you get out of the North Tower before it collapsed?
0: I, I didn't get out of the North Tower.
1: You were trapped under the debris?
0: I was in the North Tower. I got down to, to the sixth floor. It took about 30 minutes to get from the, from the 30s down to the sixth floor, approximately the sixth floor. And I was on the sixth floor when the, uh, the North Tower collapsed. And for how long were you tra- trapped, Chief? Uh, somewhere between four and five hours.
1: And how is it that you were found?
0: Um, Actually, it's an amazing story. Myself and a small group of people, we were in the stairwell, and the stairwell stayed semi-intact. I'm not saying it was intact, but it it became like a cave. It was filled with a lot of debris, but there were uh, 13 of us in there, the only 13 in either building that survived. And after, um, after a few hours, we... It was like a crevice. We couldn't see any light, but then we saw saw a little bit of light filtering through. We couldn't see any light because all the dust and the smoke from the, the surrounding fires uh, obscured it. But after a few few hours, we could see it, and we were able to actually climb up and climb out. So we were in the middle of this debris field. Uh, those of us that that could, because we had injured people with us, uh, and at the same token, we were calling for help with, on our radios, and people were trying to find us. Um, but we actually climbed
1: out on our own. Was it only firefighters with you, or were they were they other yeah, folks as well? Not,
0: it was Eleven firemen, uh, one Port Authority police officer,
1: and one woman, uh, black
0: woman from uh, Brooklyn named Josephine.
1: Well, but, but you've got a connection to those folks that'll that'll last more than a lifetime. Oh uh,
0: huh? yeah, we're, we're in a unique club.
1: That was Richard Pitch Picciato, Chief Pichietto, trapped under the rubble. Author of the book called Last Man Down, joining Kevin Flynn who wrote 102 Minutes, Lawrence Wright, Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11, former Navy Secretary and 9-11 Commissioner John Lehman, Alice Hoagland, who lost her son Mark Bingham, one of the heroes of Flight 93, Michael Tuohy, the Portland, Maine, U.S. Airways ticket agent, and Jose Melendez Perez. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's the 20th anniversary of September 11. You've just now heard our 1. Hour one focused on the events that preceded September 11. When I return, we're going to drill down on the events of that fateful day. I'm sure you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing. I did, and I always will. Uh, Then hour three, we'll talk about the aftermath. Don't go away. Hey, it's me, your barista. So, you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious.